Good afternoon, and welcome to another episode of the Martin Rehab M&A Advisory. Today, we are going to be kicking off a brand new series that we're calling Paul Martin's Crucial Conversations. And we could not be kicking it off with a better speaker and, uh, and, 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 and person today. Today, we have with us Paul Welk from Tucker Arnsberg. Tucker Arnsberg is a law firm that is located in three cities, Pittsburgh, Harrisburg, as well as New York. Now, Paul, as most of you probably know, is a physical therapist, in addition to being an experienced attorney. Paul has worked with over 100 physical therapy practices in the sale and disposition of their businesses, representing their legal interests, as well as working in all other areas of healthcare law. We're going to have Paul's contact information available to all of you at the end of our discussion today. Um, so feel free to reach directly out to him if you have any questions um, about uh, our, our interview today. So Paul, welcome and we appreciate you joining us today. Thanks for having me. I look forward to the discussion. So Paul, I'm gonna just jump right in here and we're gonna hit you with the million dollar question right off the bat, all right? And I'm sure for many of those out there, the big question we all have is, are deals getting done in this current environment? We're still seeing a very healthy deal flow that's coming through our office. I, I anticipated this question in light of the market. So, you know, thought about you know, what we have currently working on and, and what we've recently closed. And we closed a number of transactions, you know, 1231, so effective at year end. And we've probably got 10 or 12 transactions that are in one phase or another today. Uh, you know, obviously buyers are, are, you know, maybe being a little more cautious and taking a look at maybe some things that they didn't in the pre-COVID times. But I think from a deal flow perspective, we're certainly seeing a healthy volume you know, continue in the market. So, so what I'm hearing Paul say is there's still there's still still companies out there that are looking for good deals for good companies that are prepared. Um, Paul, are, are you seeing any major structural changes from kind of the pre-COVID deals that you've worked on in the new environment? I think that I think that we are. I, I think we're seeing a number of different things. I, I think, you know, while historically, when you came closer to the closing of a transaction, what you would see buyers looking at is you know, metrics to confirm that your business was continuing at the run rate that they were buying. So they would want to make sure that the business was what they thought the business was, and that it continued to, you know, to be that up through closing. I think what we're seeing now is is more of a, an additional look of you know, what have you returned to again i'll use the term pre-covid because i'm not sure that I, I know of a better one but sort of what have you returned to pre-covid and, and we see a lot of buyers for example that might say hey are you you know are you 90 percent back to where you were from a pre-covid metric and, and looking at different things that will allow them to close so we see that as closing conditions sometimes even within the purchase documents that say as a condition to the buyer doing the deal you need to have basically shown us evidence that you're back to the value that we're paying i think we are also seeing 
somewhat of an increase in earnouts or basically contingent payments made to a seller um, as a result of a transaction. So for example, if, if I came to, to you, Paul, and you were the buyer in this scenario, and I said, you know, my EBITDA was $500,000, but now it's 400, you know, I'd like to be paid at 500, you may not want to do that. So we'll see doc, you know, we'll see within the documents and within the negotiated deal terms, a way to allow potentially me as the seller to be paid for my pre-COVID value, but only if my performance, you know, over a period of time, maybe after the closing warrants that. So I think we've seen a, a slight increase in the use of earnouts to protect the buyers from overpaying for a practice on a value that's no longer consistent. Um, yeah, and you know, I think, you know, for, for, for our listeners today, anytime, you know, as a physical therapy business owner, you hear those, those two words, earn out, you know, there's always that fright of, you know, it's something we'll never achieve, it's something we can never get to. Um, these earnouts, and, you know, in the deals that we've worked with, these earnouts seem different and unique from what we saw, you know, let's say, you know, 10, 15 years ago, you know, in the old days of Hell South and, and some of the, um, uh, the, the inaugural acquirers. Um, would you agree with that? I would, because I think the circumstance here is one where you're trying to balance basically paying what the seller views as the true value of their practice. Because I think many sellers would look at it like, okay, if you looked at my financials, they may not support this value. But if you consider where I am today, I've hypothetically survived the you know COVID fairly well in my business, and I'm back to that historical run rate, back to those historical evaluation numbers, back to the historical visit numbers. If you buy my business today, that's what you're getting, even though the financials don't reflect it. And I defer to folks like you to make the financial arguments, but I, I think that's that's the overall picture. So it's not, it's not, at least in my mind, trying to achieve some greater value than what the practice was ever worth, but more of a way to balance the necessities of COVID to make a deal come together and allow the seller the potential to achieve those numbers. So I think that's the distinction between what I'd call sort of the historical earnout, as you've described, and what we're seeing in this market. Right, right, right. So, you know, um, from a legal perspective, um, as we look at a rehab deal, you know, very specifically, um, what makes a rehab deal so unique from other types of deals? And I know you work in other areas of healthcare as well as within your firm. There are all kinds of deals running through the firm. But what makes a rehab deal so unique? I think there's a couple of things out there, and you know, this comes up in other healthcare transactions. But I think when you think about the importance of payer contracting and payer relationships and how those affect a transaction. It, th those are a very large driver. I mean, everybody on here understands the value of a, of a payer contract that reimburses well. And we see, you know, from a transactional structure perspective, 
some very unique things to allow the benefits of those payer contracts to move forward, whether it's some type of a transition period to allow for a smooth transition of credentialing and related things that tie into the, the payer space. But I think when you look at payer contracting, that's a big piece. I think the the second thing is really just the regulations that govern you know, not only healthcare, which is obviously a heavily regulated industry, but specific to physical therapy. You know, you run into a, a lot of those issues, whether it's assessing you know, anti-kickback concerns in a real estate lease uh, or those type of things that you, you wouldn't see in a non-healthcare and maybe even in a non-physical therapy transaction. Yeah, yeah. And so if, you know, and for, for all of you out there, um, you know, we are big proponents of when you're looking to do your deal and you're looking for legal representation is, and without just, you know, saying everybody should use Paul, <laughs> what we are saying is that you really need to make sure that you are utilizing someone who has seen a deal that is, you know, a rehab deal and is similar to a rehab deal. So, Paul, how can an attorney with an extensive rehab deal experience, how can that help someone to get their deal done in a timely manner while making sure that you're still protecting all of their interests? Sure, and, and, and I guess I, I think of engaging an attorney just like you'd engage any other professional service provider. So you know, doing your homework and, and identifying somebody that's knowledgeable in the space and that's a good fit for your particular practice. And I think the, I think the benefit of that, um, you know, I think of myself, I'm an attorney, but if you ask me to handle your divorce or go into a courtroom, that's not a good fit because it's not what I do. So just like all physical therapists aren't created equal, you know, all, all attorneys aren't. So I think when you look at that and you see you know, what are the benefits of talking with somebody, you know, or engaging with somebody that, that knows the space, they're going to be aware of the issues. They're going to be aware, and I think they can, from your, your point on timeliness, you can get out in front of certain things that otherwise may be a surprise. So for example, you know, if your state has particular facility licensing requirements, or if there are certain payer credentialing issues that have to get started, or if there are notice letters that need to go out to payers. I think someone that has a familiarity of those issues that come up in transactions and has dealt with a large volume of, of rehab specific deals, you know, understands those and can help to be proactive as opposed to reactive in the process. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so, you know, again, um, where, where I think Paul's going there is that having the experience of seeing a lot of rehab deals really gives someone, you know, an added advantage going into the market um, and in the negotiation with the other side, for sure. Um, Paul, as you look at rehab deals in general, what do you think are some of the biggest legal challenges for a seller in a rehab deal? Sure, I, I, think, I think really, and this is, I suppose, a little bit legal and a little bit business and preparation, but it, it's really understanding the process and understanding the, the diligence 
that your practice is going to undergo as part of that. So most folks, this is something that you do once in your career. I'm sure we've got some serial entrepreneurs on, on, on participating in this call that may be on their second or third time around. But most folks do this once. And it's a process that from a preparation standpoint, I think that's very important. So I think where we see challenges come up is somebody that's you know, not prepared for it, whether it's uh, you know on the compliance side, for example. If you plan to do a transaction, let's say in a year, you may think about things like, you know, should I make sure, you know, what steps should I take to make sure that I'm practicing compliantly and following the Medicare and other rules? What steps should I do to make sure that my financials look like they should? Because I think when, when, you, when you deal with a sophisticated purchaser of physical therapy practices, the way that you are prepared to present your practice is, is very important. And I think that the legal issues associated that with that, whether it's you know, an inability to locate signed copies of any contracts or those type of things, to the extent you can plan ahead and, and be prepared to address issues, you know, can help to move the process forward. Yeah, and, and you heard from Paul um, the word preparation, you know, over and over and over again. And I think, um, you know, as it relates to today's discussion, legal preparation is crucial. Um, legal preparation, you know, as, as Paul will, will convey, you know, really making sure that all your documents in place, all your leases are in place, all your contracts are in place, your buy-sell agreement is in place, making sure all of that is in order prior to having a buyer come in and find out that it's not in order um, is always recommended. So as you have been working on deals for many years, um, what are some of the legal issues that you see that you know have and can just you know kind of kill a deal? The, 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 the deals that I've worked on and, and the majority of them you know, work their way to a successful closing, but in those cases where they don't, the, the, the biggest stop sign from a purchaser side, in my experience, is compliance related. So when I think about those deals that have been on the right track, and, and the call has come from the buyer to say, for this reason, I, I'm no longer interested. I appreciate your time. They have been compliance driven issues. So by way of example, um, issues that have arisen are, you know, over scheduling of patients to not allow for appropriate supervision. Uh, that has stopped a deal, um, a deal where, you know, a, a number of providers were, were billing inappropriately under one credentialed provider. I mean, these are things that cause buyers to step away because when you think about the risk associated with that, especially if it's structured as a stock deal where the buyer would take on the risk, that they're, they're not willing to do that. And in some of these transactions, the buyer will step away and say, I'd love to come back in a year and see what you've done to resolve that problem. Uh, that's not a position that you wanna put yourself in. So I think there's the compliance side of it. And I think, you know, the other pieces that I've seen that have, I don't either stop deals or significantly slowed them, uh, you know, relate to primarily contractual issues. So if you've got a, you know, a key landlord, for example, in your primary location that, that's unwilling to consent to a lease assignment, or you've got staff members that are not on board and unwilling to sign employment contracts. I think staff retention 
and issues related to that and basically getting your folks on board. And, and that, that's always a, an interesting process of when do you do that? Um, and folks like you know Paul and his team, you know, we all work together to see when that makes the most sense. But having staff on board, as you can imagine, if I was coming to buy your practice and staff is one of your largest assets and they all start to get uncomfortable and you know express desires to maybe not go forward, that's not helpful. So I think those are a few things that I've seen in, you know, in practical reality that have caused deals to either be stopped or, or significantly delayed. Absolutely, and, and you know, sellers seem to be very wary when they see reps and warranties. And while it should be pretty basic, um, you know, it can be very overwhelming when you look at some of the details of those reps and warranties. Would you just, Paul, be able to speak to, you know, what as a rehab, uh, as a rehab owner, when I sign off on those reps and warranties in a deal, what, what am I really doing there? Sure. So if you had a purchase agreement in front of you and hypothetically it was 50 pages, probably 20 or so of that will be the reps and warranties. So yeah. uh, it, it's, it seems disproportionate, but th th those are basically the provisions whereby the seller and the owners of the seller are promising that the things stated in there are true. So for example, I followed all the billing rules of Medicare. Um, you know, I said it in one sentence, that agreement will say it in about two pages. But the, the, the point of that is from a buyer's perspective, they are making you as the seller represent and warrant that you've run a, your business in the right way. And, and the, what happens then you know, as part of the process is there are a number of disclosure schedules and things. So for example, if you had to disclose an audit, you would do that. But then once the transaction closes, if one of your representations and warranties proves to be false or incorrect and the buyer suffers a loss, that's where they come back to you as the seller and say, I paid you a million dollars, but you, know, you weren't doing this correctly and now it's caused me a loss. I'm going to come back and I expect you seller to make me whole. And that's a process that's called indemnification that's set forth in detail in the agreement. But at a high level, your reps and warranties, they are fairly daunting. Uh, what I usually tell folks to do as a practical tip is to read two pages and then go take a walk come back and read more because if there if there are false things in there and it doesn't have to be something you did on purpose if there are things in there that are just not accurate um, then you subject yourself to an indemnification claim a practical example uh, we had a practice that one of the attachments to a purchase agreement is oftentimes financials and and just by a mistake they failed to include a fairly significant pay raise to a clinic manager so after the transaction closed, the, the, the buyer realized this, came back and said, you know, you made a mistake. It was an acknowledged mistake. So there was an adjustment in price because they failed to include a fairly material expense in their financials. So that's an easy example of a rep and warranty that in this case was breached. There was a loss because the buyer presumably overpaid and then the seller was required to make the buyer whole. Yeah, yeah. Th thank you. That's really helpful. And, and I hope that's helpful for all of you as well, um, because this seems to be on that first read 
of you know a seller when they read through those documents and as Paul just alluded to pages and pages of representations and warranties um, can sometimes be very overwhelming and again as Paul just alluded to all a part of preparation is making sure that and knowing that at some point in time you're going to have to represent and warranty what you have done in your business if you're going to transition your business um, to a partner. So really, really important, and I think a big part of the legal process is you know, going through those representations and warranties. So we started with a million dollar question, and what I wanna do is end with another million dollar question. And so, you know, Paul Welk, <laughs> what is your view on where this market is going where this market is heading in the future now that we're you know starting to the vaccine many folks are getting vaccinated um what's your view on where, where this is headed in the future i mean with what we're seeing now you know as i said when we started our discussion we're still seeing a healthy deal volume both you know currently here and as well as folks that are out negotiating letters of intent with potential buyers we're still seeing healthy multiples that are being paid for practices based upon those valuations. I think you may see buyers that are a little bit more selective or a little bit more cautious, certainly in the process, as they assess you know, the, the factors that may put them at risk when they close on a transaction. But your points are, I think are, are good ones as the vaccine starts to be more, more broadly available and you see, you know, hopefully a, a, a coming out you know, from where we are now in terms of COVID and its effect on the market. I haven't seen anything to indicate a, a slowdown. So I, I think it's certainly you know, a, a good time if you're well prepared for it to continue to enter out into the market if that's the right time in the life cycle of your practice. And I think, you know, many practices have been able to pivot and adjust well uh, to the pandemic to put themselves in a position to sit down and have a discussion with a, a buyer as to why their value you know, should be where it was from a, again, I'll call it pre-COVID. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, well, look, Paul, first of all, thank you all for joining us today. And we appreciate um, uh, you, you, you tuning in today. Um, we're going to leave Paul's contact information. Um, so feel free to contact me directly. Again, you can click below, set up a call with me, or if you'd like to contact Paul, feel free to contact him directly. Um, and Paul, thank you. Um, th this has been awesome. Um, you know, uh, I, I think for so many of us out there, there's just so much uncertainty. And I feel like I've been talking about uncertainty you know, since the middle of March. <laughs> and, you know, now we're into 2021 and we all thought by 2021, things will be somewhat certain. But I think there still is a lot of uncertainty out there. And I think hearing from someone like yourself who is in this every single day um, can really be a benefit to the listeners today. So I really appreciate you joining us today. No, and, I, and I'm, I'm glad to join on the discussion and I appreciate the invitation and I wish everyone out there a, a good luck in your practices and personally in the upcoming year. Thanks very much, Paul.
Thanks.